Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. How great to be back in the basement for another record. Well, aren't you peppy? Uh, I am. It's a it's a very exciting week. Lots of doings here around the McCabe home. Oh, God. I'm tired. Yep, we're both very <laughs> extremely tired. Um, and it's not stopping yet. Mm-hmm. But Never we, stop, never stopping. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll have a new home soon. But maybe we'll talk a little more about that at the end of the show, if at all. For now, let's give the people what they want to hear, Carrie, which I believe this week... Is a murder? (laughs) I mean, if that's what they want to hear, then yeah. We have a light crossover episode this week, actually. Recently, I guested on the podcast You're Missing Out, which covers all of the films admitted to the National Film Registry since its inception in 1989, movie by movie. That's right. I a little peek behind the curtain. I was privy to uh, at least your side of this recording (laughs) while it was going on. Now, has that episode already come out as our listeners are hearing this? Uh, Technically, yes, because uh, this episode and their episode both are dropping in the wee hours of Thursday, the 27th of April. So it's kind of a simulcast situation. Great. So go get the latest episode of You're Missing Out and listen to more of Caroline's uh, dulcet tones and maybe find a new favorite podcast, second favorite podcast. Exactly. And uh, if you've been following us and you know that we we guested back on the first season of You're Missing Out, both of us, where we talked about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. That's right. Great time um, with Mickey and the boys. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And this season, I returned solo. Sorry, Sean. Well, you know, what are you, what are you <laughs> uh, To discuss the 1951 film A Place in the Sun, which was admitted to the registry in 1991 and stars Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, this was uh, squarely up your alley, especially mm-hmm. because of the Taylor connection. Right. Now, why was I, of all people, asked to appear on this episode? Well, the hosts of You're Missing Out, Mike and Tom, happen to be personal friends of mine. We both attended film school together in Long Island and have stayed close ever since. So it was a little bit of nepotism, I guess. But... You are a nepo baby. I've been (laughs) meaning to mention that. Uh, Well, being friends, they know I've had a longstanding adoration for Elizabeth Taylor, the classic film actress and activist. Yes, and... uh little peek behind uh, once again a little peek behind the kimono here the, the, oh, in, not in, the kimono in the McCabe house. not the kimono again i've been packing up a lot of books recently mm-hmm. and you I, I was able to fill an entire one of those plastic uh, uh sort of tubs mm-hmm. With just Elizabeth Taylor and Marilyn Monroe biographies. So, Marilyn, there's a lot of different perspectives on Marilyn. And so that kind of lends itself to a lot of different academic work. But when it comes to Elizabeth Taylor, there's just, you know, several (laughs) biographies about her. I've read all of the notable ones. Several, several. Yes. Uh, And I've really long admired her for both her talent and also her determination through tragedies, health crises, and as one of the first public figures to vocally join the fight against AIDS, which was a really, really big deal at the time. Um, And I just think she's a fabulous woman. Uh, She, you know, she had her flaws. She would own up to them before anyone else. 
And um, I just, I really like her. I think a lot of people have an attachment to Marilyn Monroe or Audrey Hepburn, but I think she's really underrated in terms of the kind of screen legends that people, I don't know, put posters of on their college dorm walls. Uh, Do you think that's because as opposed to a Hepburn or a Monroe, uh, a lot of her kind of biggest roles were later and so young, young women don't attach themselves to her as much? I don't know if that's necessarily it, but I do know that she was a very, very astute businesswoman. She had a lot of investments and she created the first celebrity fragrance ever. And she also created Amphar, the um, the AIDS charity. She created that. It was possibly the first AIDS charity because people just were not talking about it. So she she had this sort of business background and this business acumen. And I think that informs more of things that are merchandised in her name and stuff. Whereas Marilyn Monroe, I think, you know, well, she, she passed away so suddenly, I don't think she had things in order uh, quite like an Elizabeth Taylor did who, who died in her later years. So I had a lot of Liz expertise to bring to the table. And by the way, she hated being called Liz. So that's the only time I'm going to do that. <laughs> she preferred Cleopatra. Is that- <laughs> uh, but second, A Place in the Sun is actually based on a famous crime as well. The one that has fallen somewhat out of the zeitgeist as time has gone by, aside from its pop culture associations. So because of this sort of weird meshing of my um, personal obsessions, I kind of was asked to do this. I studied up on the history, and I brought that context to the discussion of the film adaptation. Yeah, now, I have not been spoiled on the crime, but I did watch the movie with you, and Mm -hmm. you uh, mentioned a few of the broad broader strokes while we were watching. This is a pretty loose adaptation of this murder, right? Yeah, well, the movie is a closer adaptation of the book, the novel that was based on the murder. Is that also called A Place in the Sun? It is called An American Tragedy, and it's actually more expansive than the movie is, but it introduces like a love triangle element that's not as clear in the real story and stuff like that. But I implore our listeners, especially any classic film fans, head over to your Missing Outs feed, subscribe, and listen to the most recent episode. Like I said, it's dropping the same day as this one. Um, so we're going to be covering today the true crime that inspired A Place in the Sun, the murder of Grace Brown in 1906. So feel free to listen to both episodes in whatever order you prefer. Maybe you want to get the history from us first and then see how it was adapted into a film on uh, You're Missing Out or vice versa. See what they messed up. I don't know. Whatever you want to do. The world's your oyster. Yeah. And um, you can, of course, hear Carrie's thoughts on the film over on You're Missing Out. But uh, I'll just say I, it's one of these movies where you, 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 there's, there, there is nobody to really like or root for. It's a melodrama, which had a very specific time. I mean, there are still versions of that, especially in movies targeted to teenagers. But it had a very specific time period where it was just the thing in Hollywood. And it's, it's I mean, melodrama. I mean, it's very heightened emotions and everything's very intense. And it might not resonate as much nowadays. Yeah, I, 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 um, 
I had a hard time figuring out what I was supposed to take away from it as a who you were supposed to like or root for. What's or? the message here? What's mm-hmm. the what's the moral? Just seemed well, like everything the guy did logically led to all of the bad things that happened. Right, and I think you see that more clearly in the story, uh, uh, the real story. Spoiler alert! But I think they did want to make things more gray than black and white with the film. Now, this crime uh, has harder to obtain biographical material, and there's certainly much less coverage on it than crimes from the same time period, like Jack the Ripper or the Borden murders. So I think this is going to be a shorter episode, but I never know. I just write everything out, and then the chips fall as they may. But with all that said, let's now get into the story of Grace Brown, Chester Gillette, and the horrific murder in the Adirondacks that horrified a nation and inspired inspired not only a popular novel, but an Oscar-winning silver screen classic. Oscar-winning, huh? Yeah, and even more nominations. Wow. So let's begin with a little backstory and our sources for this episode. I used segments of the book Murder in the Adirondacks, an American Tragedy Revisited by Craig Brandon, which is kind of the book about the case, and also referenced an excellent article on the case by Heather Monroe on Medium called The Tragic Death of Grace Brown. I always like to credit my sources. I know you're so good that way. Oh. So well, last week I was using Suetonius. Yeah, a, that's that's a little further back, but still. He's around. I like to cite my so I like to give the man credit. <laughs> yeah. At the beginning of our tale, Grace Brown was born on March 20th, 1886 in South Atselic, New York, to a fairly successful area dairy farmer. However, it seems like the Brown family still needed a little extra help financially, likely due in part to the fact that Grace herself was the fifth of nine children. Big family. Yep. So there were a lot of mouths to feed. Grace graduated from a one-room school at the age of 16, spent a short while working as a farmhand in Norwich, and then moved to the nearby town of Cortland, also in New York, in 1904 to live with her married sister Ada and to find work. Uh, Cortland are the uh, pitched, hated rivals of (laughs) Ithaca College. Isn't it SUNY Cortland's up there? Uh, Yes, and we would play the Cortica Jug every year. It wasn't a bowl game. It (laughs) It was a jug game. Oh. Uh, I never attended a football game, but uh, the Cortica Jug... I attended one in college. Cortica Jug was uh, the biggest party day of the year on campus, Mm. regardless of where the game actually took place. I'm sure you attended that. Yeah, many write-ups. Many (laughs) write-ups were had on Cortica Days. Wow. Well, Grace, by all accounts, was a happy and lively young woman noted for being very pretty, who loved singing and dancing and would attend live music shows whenever possible. Her favorite song was Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey. And uh, that le- I love that one, by the way. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a toe tapper. Beetle, Beetle Bailey? Bill. Bill okay. Bailey. And this led some to nickname her Billy because she had such an affinity for this song. It's like me being nicknamed bright side i guess yeah how obnoxiously <laughs> often is she putting this song on that that they there were her. to be fair there's not a lot of songs around to put on yeah it's probably just sheet music as well <laughs> yes. that she's playing on the piano um and she would eventually sign off letters as the kid in a reference to western outlaw billy the kid so it's one of those nicknames that just kind of yeah like when you call the dog tep because he's bubba bubba hotep hotep tep He's a a little pharaoh, what can I say? 
So at 18 years old, Grace was ready to begin her new life and her journey started and sadly ended with a job at the Gillette Skirt Factory on Miller Street in Cortland. The factory was owned by Noah Horace Gillette, who had begun his trade making made-to-order petticoats for women's dresses in 1896 and had expanded his business to the factory on Miller Street by 1904. This is before Mr. Gillette's lucrative turn into the uh, shaving business. Sean, literally written down, just for reference, this Gillette is not related to the shaving company Gillette's, as far as I could tell. You did look it up. I did. Well, you know, Gillette. It seems that the skirt factory was a popular place for women in the area to find work. According to a contemporary article in the Cortland Cortland Semi-Weekly Standard, it was hoped that the factory would, quote, do much of the high class of work for the women of Cortland, which has previously gone to Syracuse and New York. So due to the nature of the labor at the factory, you know, making dresses and everything, uh, it was expected that many women would be working at Gillette and that it would improve the economy of the area due to that fact. And women wouldn't have to leave the town to find work. Great. Well, not for Grace. Uh, It was while working at the skirt factory that Grace Brown made her fateful acquaintance with Chester Gillette. Now, as I'm sure you, Sean... Any relation to Penn? I don't think so. That that I didn't look up. (laughs) Is it spelled with a G or a J? G. G, yes. not, not Not related to the magician. He's G? J. J? Is he? Yeah. Okay. Well... Chester was indeed related to the Gillette that owned the factory. Don't know about Penn, um, but he was Noah Horace Gillette's nephew. So nepotism, still an issue even over a century ago. Well, yeah, sure, of course. (laughs) Probably even more so. I'm sure there were a lot of people named Rockefeller in the government Mm -hmm. uh, then and and even more so soon. Mm -hmm. Chester was born on August 9th, 1883 in Wicks, Montana, the son of a silver miner. Three years later, this branch of the Gillette family moved to Spokane, Washington, but unfortunately lost everything just a few years after that in the Great Spokane Fire of 1889. And this was described at the time by locals as the most devastating fire that has occurred in the history of the world. But by the time the fire was finally quelled, over 30 city blocks had been burned, wiping out the downtown area and causing millions of dollars in damages, as well as great losses to those whose property was engulfed in the flames. All right. Now, Carrie, it does seem demonstrably smaller than, say, the wildfires in the Midwest last year. Well, but that was after. They don't know. Well, yeah, but there have been wildfires forever. It, it, it sounds smaller than the, the the Nero fire we talked about last week. I'm sure to them it, it did feel like the end of the world. After this tragedy, the family turned to religion, possibly as a way to cope with losing almost everything. The Gillettes became profoundly evangelical and joined the Salvation Army, shunning worldly goods and money, possibly a dramatic reaction to the destruction of all of their possessions. Yeah, as part of joining that order, as part of being knighted, uh, you have to give up all your worldly goods and take up a Santa suit and a bell. That's... I think that's a different thing. (laughs) Those guys are Salvation Army. (laughs) The Gillettes began to move frequently at this point in the name of evangelism, and it became difficult for Chester to receive a proper education. 
Noah Horace Gillette came to the rescue in 1902, using his wealth to give nephew Chester a chance to attend Oberlin College's Preparatory Academy in Ohio. However, Chester struggled at the prep school, likely due to his scattershot education to that point, and left in 1903. Noah, perhaps still feeling a little responsible for the young man, gave him a job working at his skirt factory in Cortland, New York. Chester moved to Cortland in 1905 and soon after would meet one of the workers, Grace Brown. Now here I want to know that Chester was kind of a catch for the area and he knew it too. Okay, but you said it was a problem that she, oh, she's going to end up dead. I get it now. Well, yeah. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Though Chester was from the poor side of the family, he was still a Gillette, and he had the goodwill of his uncle to support him in his endeavors. He was young, handsome, had some access to money, had a job that it would be rather hard to lose as the owner's nephew. Nepo baby. Yeah, he's husband material, especially for the time. Chester began to mix in with upstate New York high society, thanks to Noah's connections, and was invited to the finest parties and introduced to the classiest young women. He had the world at his feet despite his fraught upbringing, and he was set on marrying up and settling into upper class life. You know how you can tell the uh, upper crust of upstate New York. New snow shovels. That's very good. It snows a lot up there. It sure does, Carrie. Well, Sean, as the saying goes, even the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And it certainly did in Chester's case. Now, Chester, being a 22-year-old red-blooded male ready to sow his wild oats after his devout and suffocating upbringing, found it hard to resist the temptation present in dozens of young, available women working around him at the Gillette Skirt Factory. Oh, the and, and you know... What a bevy of beauties Cortland, New York in 1910 had to be. 1905. And I don't know. Grace was pretty. I didn't look at pictures of anyone else, but she she's doing well for herself. All right. All right. <laughs> but we also have different standards of beauty now, certainly. So it's hard to know who Chester may have dated or bedded before or even after he met Grace, but it's clear that by spring of 1906, the pair had entered into a sexual relationship. (coughs) Though Grace had clear hopes for the affair, with some reports stating that she was so infatuated with Chester that she began to make mistakes at work, risking firing, Chester didn't seem to take the relationship as seriously as marriage. That feels like a male idea you know she was so dizzy she uh, <laughs> she started uh, screwing up the skirts you see <laughs> yeah while chester was chasing skirts yeah exactly grace was young and beautiful and willing and that was enough to satiate chester's appetites but it wasn't enough to give her the gillette name and in fact chester had apparently set his sights in that regard on a young sh- young socialite named Harriet Benedict, the daughter of a wealthy New York family. Oh, she's in Cortland society. She's around. She's around. All the balls at the local train station. (laughs) Well, Chester seemed to forget that it took two to tango, and in May 1906, Grace nervously revealed to him that she was pregnant. Because of the societal implications of having a baby out of wedlock, and in no small part because of her genuine love for him, Grace 
begged Chester to marry her and consecrate their relationship before the baby was born. Chester, however, was horrified at this development, and his knee-jerk reaction was to offer to find her a solution to the problem with an operation, aka a very safe and smart uh, early 1900s abortion. Back alley 1900s abortion. Great. I'm sure it would have been great. Um... This is a plot point in the movie, but it was so interesting to see how they, I'm sure, you, well, you talked about this uh, on, on mm-hmm. uh, You're Missing Out, but the dancing around of an abortion subplot in this They movie. couldn't even say it in the 50s, yeah. I mean, people were having, people will always have abortions, whether or not it's legal. Well, you know, and, and, But you said there was like an earlier version of this script where they had a line that was like an allusion to a boy. Yeah. Like it wasn't even, and uh, she's going to have an abortion. It was like, I can get you a solution or something like that. And they cut that line. Yeah. Audiences at the time. And I think even now will clearly understand what's going on in the film, but yeah, they really have to dance around it because in the fifties, you can't even say abortion, much less allude to it. So Grace refused this charming offer and kept insisting that they must marry at once. She wrote letter after letter to Chester, begging him for marriage, becoming more and more desperate as Chester pulled away, eventually hardly even acknowledging her. One letter exerted in the St. Louis Dispatch read, Please write often, dear, and tell me you will come for me before Papa makes me tell the whole affair or they find out for themselves. You were like Papa. (laughs) You are like Papa. Chester had already received stern warnings from his relatives about going around with a factory girl, and he likely would have been cut off from financial support and even his job if he made his relationship with Grace official. She just didn't fit into the framework, and it didn't look good if he was dating and knocking up a subordinate. Yeah, and all the, certainly all the the broad strokes of the film are are here, except Mm -hmm. that the Elizabeth Taylor character isn't. Yeah, they mentioned that he had his eyes on this socialite, but that's like a whole big part of the movie where it's that's all that they really mentioned here is that he wanted to marry a socialite. Yeah, she is the best part of the movie. She's she's like incredible mean, but hot. Yeah, you like that, don't you? (laughs) Don't say that like that. He had never seen the dalliance with Grace as more than a sexual liaison, but it was becoming clearer and clearer to Chester that Grace was demanding more, and if word got out, he would be in trouble. So Chester began to hatch a plan, a plan that would lead to murder, a highly publicized trial, and the whole sad story to be memorialized in pop culture forever. We'll discuss Chester's horrible plan and terrible crime... (laughs) After the break. We love a terrible plan. The episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie that you're currently chewing on is brought to you by NeuroGum. Hey, Carrie here. Have you heard of Neuro? It's a gum developed by former athletes training at the highest level who didn't want to take mysterious supplements or energy drinks when studying, training, or going out. Instead of something sugary and ineffective, they wanted to create clean, balanced energy that could be taken anywhere, anytime, without the jittery crash. Now, if you know me, you know I love a buzzy boost when I start to drag. 
Trying NeuroGum's Energy and Focus Formula was a revelation. It both energized me and helped me focus, which is pretty necessary when drowning in research about crimes from over a century ago. Energy and Focus is specially formulated with natural caffeine, L-theanine, and B vitamins to sustain the mental endurance necessary to maintain focus. But that's not the only option. Neuro also offers calm and clarity and health and vitality formulas if those are your primary concerns. Of course, with my sleepy self, Energy and Focus was the natural pick to test out. Go to our sponsor link at www.tryneurogum.com slash scary to get up to 30% off of your order and enjoy energy, calm, and focus whenever you need it. There's also a link in our episode description. That's tryneurogum.com slash scary and let them know Sean and Carrie sent you. Thanks for the clean burst of energy and focus, Neurogum. Welcome back. When last we left you, Carrie had just set the stage for disaster in the sad case of Grace Brown. And it's not Penn Gillette. Chester. And Chester Gillette. No, I know what you're thinking, listener. Not he of the uh, Razor Fortune. I guess they're not thinking that because they were with us for the first half. Mm -hmm. Why am I setting it up? Carrie, what happens (laughs) next in this ill-fated love story? Well... Now it is May 1906, and Chester Gillette has a problem. He's gotten his side piece, Grace Brown, pregnant, and she's pushing him to get married despite his lack of desire and knowledge that if he does so, he will be facing severe repercussions from his work and family, which were both intertwined. Now, she's his side piece in that he's keeping her a secret and keeping her from being the main focus of his uh, life, but he's not dating the socialite yet, is he? They might have gone out, but they're not going steady, as far as I can tell. Not a Liz Hurley situation. Elizabeth Taylor. Not a Elizabeth Taylor situation. Mm-hmm. What if they remade that with Liz Hurley? You could dream about that tonight, Sean. So, what is a young man caught in a tough quandary to do? Well, if you're Chester Gillette, the answer to that was apparently commit murder. But first, he had to get himself some time. Chester, when he would talk to Grace, kept on pushing her off with assurances that, yes, he would marry her soon, soon, I swear, it's going to be great. The weeks flew by, but no proposal was forthcoming, and he was becoming more and more evasive to Grace. And perhaps Grace was seeing Chester go on with his high society life. He was attending parties with eligible young heiresses, and maybe this was starting to make her unravel a bit. She began to fall ill, and eventually Grace retreated to her family's farm in South Atselic, still sending masses of letters to Chester, imploring him to recognize his child and his responsibility to both them and to Grace. At some point, it seems, it became too much for Chester, and a plan was hatched. Chester finally replied to Grace in early July, telling her to meet him on the 10th of that month at a hotel in the Adirondacks, and uh, that on this trip, they would be finally married. Eloping. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Some believe that part of the plan that Grace was aware of involved Chester taking her to a maternity home in upstate New York where she could deliver the baby. This is because Grace packed her entire wardrobe for the trip and Chester only brought a small suitcase. So it seems like she was prepping for an extended stay somewhere. 
Well, you know how women pack, though, Carrie, am I right? Ugh. All right, Andrew Dice Clay, for some reason. Oh! The most important thing to Grace was the marriage, and she was over the moon when she finally received his reply. Grace packed her clothes, including a wedding dress, and made her way to their meeting point in DeRuiter? DeRuiter? Reuter? DeRuiter? You say so. <laughs> uh, she made her way to their meeting point in DeRuiter with swiftness. Instead of getting married immediately, however, Chester suggested, why not take a pre-wedding honeymoon? You know, one of those. Yeah, classic. This is what we all do. And by the way, did she... She doesn't uh, immediately get a little little flutter of fear when she sees that one bag he's, he's bringing with him? I think Grace was probably willing to do anything he suggested if there was a wedding at the end. Um, she was pretty desperate. I don't blame her for a lot of reasons. So she agreed to it all. She was fine with it. Blinded by love and desperation, maybe. They stayed at several hotels during the trip under false names, likely because they weren't married, or at least that's what Grace thought. Yeah, I think it might have been because he was actively planning a murder, (laughs) but uh, continue. And they spent a night at the Tabor Hotel in Utica, where they apparently left without paying for their stay. Just skipped out on the tab. I'm sure that seemed very, you know, sexy and and romantic (laughs) at the time. They continued on after this by train to Tupper Lake, where they stayed another night, They had planned to visit a nearby lake the following day, but rain prevented them from going. So instead, on July 11th, they returned south by train to Big Moose Lake and checked in at the Glenmore Hotel. He's like, okay, where's there a lake? Where's there a lake? Where's there a lake? Big Moose, here we go. Chester signed the register upon check-in, writing Carl Graham of Albany and Grace Brown South at Selleck. So all of her information was correct there. Why did he do that? We'll get into that later, She's but it the was dumb. not coming home, and you've been using fake names for both of them the rest of the trip? Mm-hmm. Was this just a slip-up? I don't know what this was. Maybe he knew what he was going to do, and he was trying to be kind to her family in some way. I don't know. Yeah, but this is just getting caught for murder. Well, anyway, what a fucking dust. He, trust me, he was going to get caught either way. Soon after they checked in, the couple headed down to the lake to rent a rowboat, where they were seen rowing out onto the water and even going on shore for a picnic during the day. So, Sean, I think you obviously see where this is going. Yeah. Now, in should I spoil the movie or should I avoid spoiling the movie? Avoid spoiling the movie. Let, let, let them go to You're Missing Out to get that. Okay. Uh, based on the contours of... I mean, the story is similar, so that's spoiler enough. Well, yeah, but in the movie, you know... Uh, based on the contours of this, and it, I think the audience can infer what I was going to, you know, spoil anyway here. Um, based on everything about this trip, all of his suspicious behavior, mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and guess that this was not an accidental drowning in any way. I'm going to guess that he drowned her on this rowboat. Depends who you believe, Sean. At nightfall on Big Moose Lake, the couple still hadn't returned the rowboat to the man who had rented it to them, Robert Morrison. Morrison initially thought that perhaps the pair had misjudged the size, of the size of the lake and had gotten lost. Maybe they ended up at another lakeside resort. He gave it some time, but when they still hadn't returned on the second day, Morrison formed a search party, which began to comb the lake by steamboat. Eventually, Morrison's little rowboat was found in the water, overturned and empty. 
More suspiciously, a young boy in the party noticed a strange-looking mass at the bottom of the lake, and upon investigation by the crew, it was found that the mass was actually the dead body of a woman. That's a very clean, very shallow lake. I assume so. Maybe the like sun was right overhead? You just see a lady in it? I guess. The police were immediately called to the scene, and figuring that both of the pair had drowned, quickly began to drag the lake for the second corpse. But none was found. As poor Grace's body was brought in for autopsy, more was discovered about the couple that had rented Morrison's boat. They were registered at the Glenmore as Carl Graham of Albany and Grace Brown of South Atzelik. The authorities used this information to contact Grace's family with the terrible news. And the family told authorities that Grace had never associated with anyone named Carl Graham to their knowledge, but she had spent much time with a man named Chester Gillette. Oops. The autopsy soon showed that Grace was four months pregnant at the time of her death and bruises were noted on her head, both details suggesting foul play. Well, the pregnancy suggests foul play. I mean, it presents motive, given what we know about the I rest of the story. I think that's the point, yeah. She was also uh, apparently alive when her body had entered the water. Here, the investigation turned to suspected murder and unluckily for him, the culprit ha- now had the correct name for investigation. She was unconscious when she went in? It seems like she was probably knocked out, went to the water, and either succumbed to some sort of injury or drowned. There's probably water in her lungs. All right, Gillette. This, let's see what you have to say. This better be good. Mm-hmm. Two men reported to authorities that they had encountered a strange man in the Big Moose Lake woods near the time of the crime, and that this man was wearing a suit and had asked them how to get to Eagle Bay near Fourth Lake. Yeah, that does sound strange. Mm-hmm. Moving along the path they expected, who now they know Chester had taken after this interaction, they soon found him at Arrowhead Hotel and observed him apparently spending the night socializing, laughing, and even talking about a drowning that had, appen- that had happened back at Big Moose Lake and hadn't yet been reported. What? Yeah. Like he was casually making conversation. Like, oh, I did heard you know there, there was, was a, a drowning? Yeah. Pretty much. It was like Casey Anthony doing hot girl contests at nightclubs when her daughter is supposedly missing vibes. Mixed with like an Edmund Kemper of the whole like talking yeah. about like wanting to be an authority on this thing that you really shouldn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. The next morning, District Attorney Ward and Under Sheriff Austin Clock approached Chester as he sat on the hotel's veranda and Clock asked, Clock asked him, have you noticed in the papers that Billy Brown has drowned on Big Moose? Chester was shaken by the obvious authority's approach. No, is that so? He replied, trembling. Yes, responded Clock, and you're under arrest for murder. Dun, dun, dun. Mic drop, got him. That was pretty cool. Yeah. It was a pretty cool cop. Pretty cool clock. Because that's his name. Chester was asked to give his statement, an account of the events that had led to Grace's death, and initially he admitted that he was with Grace when she died and claimed that she was despondent over the pregnancy and had actually committed suicide. Oh, this is not the way to go with this, Chester. Mm-hmm. Uh, that she had just gotten up and jumped overboard and she said to hell with it, pretty much. No, you have to go with, like, 
we were we we okay you know we were arguing and then uh, she ended up getting her, her head hit on the side of the boat and are you making notes for the future sean well no i just like yeah you, you she got despondent and then she somehow bumped herself in the head and threw herself into the water well he didn't know that there were bruises on her head um but when he was told that she had clearly been beaten about the face and head before her death he decided to switch tacks In his revised version of events, Chester said that he stood up on the boat to reach his hat. And when he did, the rowboat capsized and both of them had been tossed into the lake. See, this is where you start if you want to do this play. Okay, we'll keep that in mind for my inevitable murder. Like you would get on a rowboat with me. (laughs) I have. What do you mean? okay. (laughs) Chester recovered himself. Uh, but said that he did not help Grace as he told the authorities he was worried that she would panic and pull him under as well, drowning them both. So apparently from land, I guess, he said he shouted to Grace to grab hold of the boat like, hey, all right, you're, you're doing fine over there. Grab hold of the boat. Okay, let's let's do that. Let's try this warmer. <laughs> you're getting warmer. But when she did, it flipped over once more, and this time Grace never resurfaced from the deep. And then you did what? Obviously, there were issues with both both of the stories that Chester tried to convince police with. Witnesses had told authorities that they'd seen Chester arguing with Grace during their stay, and that they had also seen him pacing the halls nervously before they went to rent the rowboat. There was apparently also the fact that he'd used an alias when checking in. He'd it seems chosen the name Carl Graham because he had a CG monogram already on his suitcase for Chester Gillette. What a fucking asshole. (laughs) And he just didn't think maybe I should bring a different suitcase. So he made up an alias to match his initials. Like no one's going to clock the monogrammed luggage. No one's going to clock it. Except for under Sheriff Austin clock. Well, of course he would, but he's not going to get a chance. You're going to be out of there before clocks on the scene. His clothing and luggage were all also completely dry and did not show any signs of water damage, even though Chester had claimed everything had fallen in the water during the accident. And of course, there was the main issue, the chappaquiddick question, if you will. If you knew Grace was in trouble, likely drowning or drowned, why didn't you tell anyone to get help? Oh, was Chester worried about ruining his run for president? He was worried about ruining his life. He did that anyway. Well, yeah, but he committed a murder. Yes. Ted Kennedy, you know, not his, not his finest hour, I think we can agree, but, but he also, he didn't murder that girl. Well, he didn't set out to murder that girl. Check out our Kennedy curse episode. Oh, boy. Chester was charged with murder, and on November 12th, 1906, the sensational trial began in Herkimer, New York. Herkimer! Herkimer. The prosecution's argument was clear. Grace was pregnant, Chester didn't want to marry her, and so he disposed of his problem the only way he thought was available to him. A murder weapon was even theorized here. When Chester and Grace had checked in to the Glenmore, he had a tennis racket in tow, which was also found in his possession upon arrest. I'm just going to say, not a great murder weapon. No, but they were certainly much heavier back in the day. They're not aluminum, they're hard wood. So the racket, said the prosecution, was what Chester used to beat Grace in the head, and either this damage to her head or the fact that she was unconscious when she hit the water and drowned led to her death. 
I'm almost certain he used a paddle and not a... Why, why would he use a tennis racket? Why would he have a tennis racket on the boat? You've got paddles. Maybe on the it. paddles were attached to the boat. You know how sometimes they're like in the thing? In the little rings? Yeah. I don't know. Oars. They thought it was the tennis racket. We're talking about oars here. Okay. Uh, okay. Shockingly, District Attorney Ward presented Grace's unborn baby to the court as physical evidence. Not like a photo. I, no, like I think the skeleton. Because there was concern the defense would simply deny that Grace was pregnant. So they really wanted the jury to see this man murdered his unborn baby as well. The courtroom was horrified, but obviously yeah. the relevant point was made. The real damning evidence of the trial were Grace's love letters to Chester, which were found in his rented room. I think the damning evidence in this trial is everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The letters were read aloud to the court and were breathlessly recounted in scads of newspapers and publications across the country. Grace's desperation was quite obvious in her writing, and this, said the prosecution, was the motive for the murder. Come to me, Chester, by the 8th of July, she wrote, else I will tell the whole world how you have treated me. Uh, yep. Lock them up, folks. On July 5th, Grace wrote another letter, looking forward to their impending trip, but regretting that apparently the plan was to cut the Browns out of their lives to prevent their knowledge of the truth. Quote, I know I shall never see any of them again. And Mama, great heavens, how I do love Mama. I don't know what I shall do without her. Sometimes I think if I could tell Mama, but I can't. She has trouble enough as it is, and I couldn't break her heart like that. If I come back dead, perhaps if she does not know, she won't be angry with me. It's just heartbreaking. She seems like a sweet girl. It is heartbreaking. She's, she's almost saying like, you know, maybe if I was dead, it would be better for my family. And she didn't know what was about to happen, of course. You know, by making Chester the Chester character the protagonist of the film. <sighs> He's definitely an anti-hero. Uh, yeah, but it's just like, I think that's why the thing fell a little flat for me, because I didn't care about him getting into high society mm -hmm. and, and, and all this stuff. I didn't care about any of the things he did. Mm -hmm. The defense argued that the letters were the work of a suicidal woman, pointing to those in which Grace herself did state she wanted to die, which she's despondent. Of course, she's she's feeling that way. Did she express a specific wish to club herself over the head with a tennis racket and, and then, then drown? swan dive off a rowboat? Not specifically, no. It was okay. more of like a sort of an existential... Yeah, not an actionable threat then. No. The defense was still insisting that Grace had jumped in the water and killed herself and that Chester had done nothing to harm her. But it was of little use. Grace's personal tragedy was palpable, and copies of the love letters were even published in booklet form and sold outside the courtroom during the trial. So that meant that even those unrelated to the events would develop their own opinions about the case across the country. After three weeks, the trial was concluded, and the jury was asked to give their own opinion on Chester's guilt. Four hours and 44 minutes of deliberation later, Chester Gillette was pronounced guilty of the murder of Grace Brown, and he was sentenced to death. I'm surprised it was that long. Uh, his, his behavior after the, the death and then the fake names, uh, it's just bad. Well, most of the, there's, hmm, it's, it's obvious, it seems obvious what happened, right? But most of the evidence is kind of circumstantial. The letters... There's no smoking gun. 
there's a tennis racket. I don't know if there was blood on it or Carry, anything. They, they, they can't do forensics. Again, there's no way it was the tennis racket. I know. I know. I know. I know. I'm just saying there's no, there's no obvious, for a death penalty, it's kind of loose on evidence. Is so, that what he got? He got the death penalty, yeah. And he swore that he would be able to overturn the ruling and appeals because there was no witnesses to the crime and so much of the evidence was circumstantial. But the New York Court of Appeals upheld the conviction and New York Governor Charles Evans Hughes refused to grant Chester clemency. So on March 30th, 1908, just over 150 years ago, Chester Gillette was brought to the electric chair at Auburn Correctional Facility and was executed. 115. 15, yeah. I thought you said 150. No. I was like, hold on a second. I'm not that bad at math. <laughs> Very bad, but not that bad. And that would have been the end of the horrible story of Grace Brown and her murderer, Chester Gillette, if not for two enduring works of art, which thankfully preserve her memory, at least in part. The first was the novel An American Tragedy, written by Theodore Dreiser and released in 1925. Dreiser had been looking for a subject to explore how money corrupts morals, and the Grace Brown murder case was kind of in the zeitgeist and proved to be fertile fruit for such a rumination. The loose story of a man murdering his lower-class lover after he gets her pregnant was adapted from this case, and the pull of higher-class society on the man was more firmly sort of symbolically illustrated in the guise of Sandra Finchley, a socialite who he hopes to marry if he can only eliminate his dirty little secret. It's also a tale as old as time, right? I mean, going back to those Roman emperors, we have guys killing uh, uh, women who were accidentally pregnant with their babies. Sure, and it's all—it's almost like in any... It's like a trope, you know? The, the high-class girl, the... the the rough and tumble lower class girl or, or for women, you know, the bad boy versus the good boy kind of vibe. Um, I think of in Jack the Ripper, all of the stuff with uh, Birdie or whoever it was. <laughs> it wasn't Birdie. They, they all, it was another guy with us with a silly nickname. They had, there were so many silly nicknames. It was that one of the princes had accidentally gotten. Oh, Albert. Yeah. Yeah. What did they call that guy? Little shrivels or something. <laughs> Little shrivels. I think he did die of syphilis. The novel uh, became incredibly popular and was placed on Time's list of the top 100 novels written in English since 1923 in 2005. The film A Place in the Sun, which we discussed at the beginning of this episode, was adapted from this form of the story. It really plays up the love triangle aspect even more. It's got the handsome young Montgomery Clift between elegant, extraordinarily beautiful Elizabeth Taylor as the socialite, and then the comparatively plain and sort of simpering Shelley Winters as the doomed pregnant factory worker. And... Sometimes you find yourself rooting for Montgomery to, to get with Elizabeth Taylor. They're both so beautiful. They deserve to be together. But then you see yourself and you're like, oh, this is terrible. I mean, he needs to do right by this poor girl that he knocked up, you know? I think the, the movie is trying to make you feel all of those very complicated feelings. Yeah, I don't know that it uh, does anything to make us understand why it's so important to him to be in society. Yeah, there is, they do show his relationship with his very religious mother, but yeah, I think if they developed his backstory a little bit more, um, 
I mean, you can see with Chester Gillette, obviously he had this very traumatic upbringing of like losing everything and evangelical religion and... Yeah, he's a real piece of shit though. Of course, but I mean, you see the desperation to to make good of the chances he's been given because so much has been taken away from him. And I don't know if the movie conveys that as well. Yeah, agreed. I can only agree. Agree mm-hmm. to agree. But the movie's great, guys. The movie's great. The Grace Brown murder case has also been adapted into numerous other forms of media or through adaptations of an American tragedy, including an opera, a young adult novel called A Northern Light by Jennifer Donnelly, and even some suspect as aspects in Woody Allen's 2005 film Matchpoint, which apparently shares a lot of plot elements. Oh, an early Scarlett Johansson uh, uh, vehicle. Mm Mm-hmm. So in pop culture, at least, the spirit of Grace Brown lives on. And as for Chester Gillette, well, I'm against the death penalty. But after the fact, I can't say I have shed any tears on his account. You know, I remember, I remember Matchpoint being really good, uh, but it's been a while. It's a great time to revisit Woody Allen films, right? Oh, brother. Sister. Daughter? Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. It's me and my boo. (laughs) Brad Pitt has unloaded his haunted Hollywood home. People reported last month that the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood star was selling the home he had lived in with Angelina Jolie and their kids before the couple's divorce in 2016. Which people? People Magazine. Oh! (laughs) And uh, he was selling it for a cool $30 million. So that's a nice profit from the $1.6 million Brad paid in 1994 when he first bought the 29-room mansion from none other than my queen, the mistress of the dark, Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Elvira. It's a little over... My math is my math is right here, Carrie. That's a little over a million dollars a room. Yeah. You ever seen a million-dollar bathroom? Million-dollar laundry room? It's crazy. I mean, in a big enough emergency, they're all million-dollar bathrooms. My kingdom for a bathroom. (laughs) Mm. Peterson told People Magazine that when she lived in the house with then-husband Mark Pearson, she saw people walking around upstairs, for example, real people just walking. One time, a ghost was sitting downstairs in front of the fireplace, once walking into my bedroom and back out. We saw a person floating around at the bottom of the pool. Things like that. Oh, just... 
people floating at the bottom of the pool. I'm pretty sure she did mention that the house was haunted as well in her biography. And she mentioned selling it to Brad Pitt. She didn't see this guy, uh, uh, Gillette, rowing around in that pool, did she? She saw some suspicious masses for sure. Elvira says that at a certain point, things were getting too spooky, even for her. And the couple even brought in a priest to do an exorcism. But none of this was a deterrent for old Tyler Durden. According to Peterson, quote, We were just kind of warning him that a lot of weird things have been going on in the house since we moved in, and he was very excited about that. He thought that was really cool. I think this is a round interview with a vampire, so that tracks. Oh, he's he's feeling spooky. Tom Cruise's method portrayal of Lestat really uh, influenced him. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And Sean, you and I are hoping, well, I don't know if I'm saying uh, hoping, but... We're open to inheriting at least a couple ghosts and ghouls in the very old house that we are, hopefully, buying this week. Uh, yes, uh, fingers crossed that nothing goes last minute wrong, but it's a, it's a very old house, and as you've pointed out, uh, people have uh, conf- definitely been born in it, and people have probably died in it. Yeah, probably had funerals there. There's a, a large parlor area that, gosh, Sean, it's just perfect for a coffin. Okay, now who's making who nervous? <laughs> That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And thank you very much to those already joining us over there on Patreon. Our top-tier patrons are Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ozzy Sean Downs, Ryan, Enrique, and our newest patron, Derek... Spelled just like Jeter. Yeah, Jeets. <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. We love you. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel. Music is a verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do. So you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.